about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, and it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first things to establish the second. By that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Let's continue reading from verse 19 uh, through to 35. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place uh, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over our house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, 
and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or, th- of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult, persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Well, good evening. My name is Mike, one of the pastors here. If you're new or newish, it's great to church with you tonight as we continue our series through Hebrews it's a long passage, took us two readers to get through it. And it's one of my favorite passages. So how long have we got tonight? Um, no, I went to that to you. Uh, instead, of, I'm going to really focus. I'm going to spend our time using the passage to drill into one word, not just one verse or one paragraph, although we'll spend a bit of time in one paragraph. I really want us to nail one word. It's the, it's the keynote word, I think, of the new covenant relationship we have with God. It's confidence. I want us to celebrate, rediscover, appreciate this this confidence that we have to enter the very throne room of God, as it were, in a way that the Old Testament didn't establish. I'm told I'm a confident person. In fact, I've been told a couple of times today, nice haircut, nice, nice kind of jacket, Helps me feel good about feeling confident about myself. <laughs> I've spent, I've actually spent many years as I look back at my life, whether intentionally or not, kind of crafting this sense of confidence that I have in myself, uh, like a marketing or branding exercise for Mike Hasty. Not a great thing, and like many people who we might say are overconfident, I've had to discover time and time again my real need to find bedrock, to find a real confidence that I can really build my life upon. See, we are a generation that have been told that success begins with self-confidence, a high self-esteem. It's kind of the way we get through all the rough and tumbles of this life if we just be true to ourselves and be confident in ourselves. right? I see a few smiles out there. And while there is such a thing as a healthy self-image, by and large, what I'm talking about, especially when we compare to the richness of what we're looking at tonight, is a false confidence. 
an overinflated sense of self who thinks of self too often. Markers of false self-confidence for me look like this kind of inner guilt and shame. Kind of while I present really well, inside it's kind of a whole bunch of crazy. And I know I'm masking it when I find myself thinking, if only they knew what was happening inside. Have you heard that inner narrative before? And when the real frustrations manifest, it is when the confidences that I've built my self-image on are threatened. So if, if my self-confidence is based on the approval of others, not such a preaching analogy, it's a real thing that's in my life, and if that is taken away, I notice. A frustration builds up in me. I get, I, I'm lost. Until I go back and find bedrock, real confidence that I can build my life upon. All this, all this false confidence... It comes from an underappreciation of who Jesus really is, a, a functional unbelieving, as it were. So if our whole series is about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, that Jesus is better than anything else, we kind of go, yep, I'm on board. But in here, if you look back at your week, your month, your year, it's so easy to track, oh, I put something else above Jesus here, 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 and here. I functionally believe that these things were better than Jesus here, here, and here. Paul Tripp, in his daily devotional, New Morning Mercies, he speaks of this issue as the battle of the heart. He says, we are value-oriented, goal-oriented, purpose-oriented, and importance-oriented beings. We are always living in the quest for something. This is the spiritual battle that is fought on the turf of our heart. Whatever important thing rules your heart shapes your words and behavior. Winning an argument becomes too important for us. A beautiful house rises in importance beyond its true worth. Getting the next promotion becomes too important. And he finishes with this. We all need to be reminded again and again of what God has declared are the most important things in life. What are you building your confidences upon? Where have you put your confidence? Well, not only does this passage show us where our true confidence lies... But for all those playing in the audience, and know the answer is Jesus, this passage reminds us of what we've been gifted to help set this truth on fire in our hearts. Now that could be the Holy Spirit. I'd love to speak about how the Spirit works in our life to set that truth on fire. But this passage reminds us of another gift we've been given, and that is each other. Because where we get to in the real crux of this passage is the exhortations that the let us, let us do this together. Let us encourage one another. And so we're going to spend a bit of time unpacking what confidence looks like, how we find it, how we live it before God in 1925. But to get there, I want to sort of just uh, take a couple of verses in those first 18 verses to get our heads in the game. But I also kind of want to think about the Hebrew, the Hebrew context, or the kind of the original listeners to this sermon, because it was a sermon, they were struggling under persecution. They were kind of new to the faith as were, first-generation Christians. And their temptation was to go back to Judaism. Because when you think about it, they've been practicing this kind of really concrete thing. So that when you sin, you go back to the priest and you kind of do the ritual, the sacrifice thing. And you kind of, I guess it's a way of sort of checking in. You know you're okay. You can build in confidences when you're going through those rituals. Although it didn't work, right? It was a shadow toward, pointing towards Christ. 
But nonetheless, it kind of was easy to build a sense of confidence that you're going in the right direction. And now they've come to faith in the Lord Jesus, and it feels, by comparison, intangible. And, and so when the pressure's on, they want to go back to that which they saw confidence in. Now, our temptation's not to go back to religion. I'll come to where I think our temptation's to go. But that's where we're headed tonight, to look into that. And so the first, the first uh, thing I want you to see in those first 18 verses is, is the kind of the foundation. And this is a bit of a summary of kind of all we've looked at in the first nine chapters of Hebrews, the once and forever gospel. Because the Old Testament, it couldn't deal with the problem of the heart with the problem of guilt and sin. It was kind of a band-aid solution. But when you look at, say, verse 10, we're going to pick out a couple of verses in the, in the kind of the ramp into verse 19 and 25. And keep your scriptures open. I love to be held accountable um, to, to be preaching the Word of God. Uh, verse 10, And by that will, that is the Father's will that the Son obeyed, uh, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. When we think about kind of unpacking that, we think of kind of holiness, we're kind of like, okay, holiness, what does that mean? It means kind of uh, perfect, um, uh, set apart, pure, and we go, I, I, I like that, I like where that's headed, I think that's where I'm headed, but I know I'm not there yet. But then we read, we have been made holy. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once and for all. Friends, here is one of the the great promises of the gospel, that the once and forever gospel, the good news of Jesus, that while you think you're kind of trying to get your life together and sort of on some journey towards holiness, the gospel promise is that, that you have been made holy. I think Galatians puts it well. We've been moved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. We have been transferred from from the life we lived where where Mike Hasty was king. And we've been moved into the kingdom where Jesus is king. Now, I'm still kind of, I'm still bumbling around in here, but I have been made holy. I have been fully transferred. We tend to think of ourselves as kind of making some progress between the two. But that would be kind of the confidence that you, you, you would kind of have to exude yourself. You would have to actually build that kind of, that journey confidence. But that's not what this is saying. The gospel is that you have been transferred and that your confidence is gifted to you. Your confidence is in Jesus Christ and what he has done. Similarly, verse 14, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He has been, he's made us perfect forever, so that when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Christ. Do you believe that? Because that is an incredible statement. But when God looks at you, he sees the perfection of Christ. Now you see all the imperfection. I am my own worst critic. I see the worst and know it's all bumbling around in there. And surely God sees that and then some. But what this gospel promise is saying is that you have been made perfect. I had a few dads over this week, not really in preparation for Father's Day, we're not, that's weird, but we were just kind of talking life. 
And uh, it's a bunch of kind of my peers, kind of young, young dads, kind of doing the sort of um, you know, little kids thing. And we're just kind of like, we're talking shop about just this kind of life, just feeling like it's a bit on loop and kind of we haven't got much time, we're sort of stressed and we're just feeling meh. And what we kind of, what was interesting to note is that for some of us who grew up in Christian families, you have this kind of season of discovering truth bombs like this and you're just like, wow, the gospel is amazing, like totally liberated and mind blown by the awesomeness of the gospel. And then kind of you get comfortable with it. I don't know how that happens with such an amazing and rich gospel, but we sort, of, we sort of get domesticated. We kind of get comfortable with it. And then comes this season of kind of serving where you're kind of, you're really getting into church and you're kind of signing up for these rosters and you're so keen and excited. Um, that's not, you might not be like that, it's okay. Um, and then uh, we get to this kind of season of, of career and then kind of family life and you've got these little annoying kids everywhere and you've got no time left to serve and you kind of, the gospel, you've sort of got your head around and then all of a sudden, everything just starts to feel really ethereal, really kind of spiritual and disconnected to the mundane loop that you're stuck in. Do you feel that sometimes? I know not all of you have young kids at home, but I find this kind of this pattern in Christian life, particularly with such an emphasis today on kind of experiencing the here and the now, that this stuff, as incredible as it is, just becomes conceptual. That's crazy. What we need is a fully integrated faith to bring to bear this truth bomb and set it on fire in our hearts in every aspect, whether I'm doing mundane stuff like changing a nappy or, or whether you're kind of just in another boring conversation at work or just another spreadsheet or whatever you're doing. We need an integrated faith that sets this truth on fire in every part of our life. And that's where we come to what I'm calling the double therefore. When we get to verse 19, there's a big therefore there that kind of then sets up a since we have confidence. Because the first therefore is that because of the gospel, read with me, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. That is because of the blood of Christ, because of the good news of Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You have confidence to enter the most holy place, to come before the Father into the very presence of God. That is an incredible statement. This is the new, te- new covenant confidence we have. Like a child on, on Father's Day morning, running in to, to delight in the Father's presence. Now, my kids know that they're not perfect. I remind them all the time. But they delight nonetheless to be in my presence. Why? Because I want to establish for them that my love for them is not contingent upon their behavior. I want to show them the grace that that I have known. How much more so does God delight in us who establishes this this confidence for us to enter into his presence by the very blood of his own son? The spirit of grace, as he says later on. Our confidence to enter the throne room of God, the very presence of God, is not conditional on us at all. 
But when I, when I look back at my Christian life and, and kind of see where I felt most confident to sort of feel the presence of God, to pray, to kind of come before Him, I kind of map out kind of my own sort of sense of self-worth as a Christian. Like, I've got my Christian stuff sorted. I'm doing really well. Therefore, I'm able to enter the throne room of God and feel His presence. But that's not how it's supposed to be. My confidence should not be based on my self-assessment, on when I've got my stuff together. In fact, I need to present myself in the very presence of God when I need Him most, when life is most crazy. I think this is, I saw this played out well as I was watching The Lion King. Uh, I was watching The Lion King yesterday with my boys and uh, the 25th, you know, cartoon anniversary edition. I haven't watched the new one yet. And I, I saw this play out most beautifully at Makuna Matata. We know the song. I don't need to give spoiler alerts for a 25-year-old movie, right? Um, we know that Simba, Simba is kind of the, the heir to the throne. He's the little cub that grows up to be the lion and he's the heir to the throne. He knows that. But he replaces all the confidence he has in that identity with what? With Akuna Matata. <laughs> no worries for the rest of your days. And, and, and while he's singing in the jungle, all Akuna Matata on top, deep within him are issues that are churning. This deep sense of shame and guilt and regret of what's happened before of how his father's died and he's escaped all of that. And all the stuff on Pride Rock, if you can remember the story, is all going you know, to crap. And he's singing Akuna Matata. And it's not until he exercises his confidence in his identity as a son that he faces both his issues and kind of things go well for Pride Rock. The thing is, our confidence is not based, I'm saying this again, is not based on getting our stuff together. It's gifted to us. We're told to exercise the identity that we have in Jesus Christ. Because we keep forgetting. We want to be all casual. Our temptation is not to go to religion. Our temptation is to get all casual and complacent. And so here comes the second therefore. We said the gospel therefore gives us confidence to enter the very throne room of God. So therefore, let us, first of all, Draw near to God to exercise that identity, to be the child that delights to be in the Father's presence. Especially when we feel least worthy. Especially then. Because our confidence is based on Christ alone. Keep reading with me. Verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. That is, we can draw near to God because of what Jesus has done with sincere hearts. And I, lo I love the way how we could look at this word sincere. Yes, be sincere. You, you kind of walk into the presence of God. He is God. You need to be kind of sincere about that, not sort of half-baked. But secondly, sincere kind of also means with your real heart. What's and all. Bring it all before God. Into the, you know, you've been granted the safety of this space before God, to enter into his presence with whatever's going on in your life because he knows everything and loves you still and you've been washed clean with the blood of Christ. And we're invited to be in his very presence. And when you're near God, the anxious hum of life fades. Time seems irrelevant. 
to-dos lose their crushing weight. And because you're in the presence of God who made everything, He delights in you and you delight in Him. Every false claim another has made on you, every negative message you've said in your head, every ounce of guilt and shame, even that which is resulted from what you've done, all of that disappears because you're in the presence of God. John Owen was a Puritan and really big on communing with God or drawing near to God. He describes kind of in one aspect, it being like a friendship. He writes, friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits, and these are better the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. He was a busy guy, but he made many visits to God, especially in prayer. Someone else has described it as just wasting time with God. We are so busy that when we draw near to God, it can be so transactional. God, to get me through today, I need you to do this, this, and this. Just bless it, please. Amen. <laughs> I mean, it's okay to kind of pray those prayers if that's what's on your heart, but if that's, what, if that's the fast food you're eating day in, day out in terms of exercising your presence in God, you're, not, you're kind of sabotaging the depth of relationship on offer. Now, I struggle with this more than anyone else here. Uh, I'm as busy as anyone, and I can so easily kind of just mash through my day and kind of squeeze God in. But friends, we are being invited to draw near to God, to waste time with Him, to delight in Him as He delights in us. That we might be reminded in those moments that our worth is not based on punching through our to-do lists, is not based on how much we can get our life in order. It's based on the gospel that grants us the very confidence to enter his throne room. Draw near to God and let us do that together. We need the us in this moment because particularly when you're in those moments where you feel rubbish as a Christian, you're going to really benefit from a brother or sister who gets alongside you and says, at least says, let me take you to the, into the presence of God. Let me pray and intercede for you. But I also want to remind you that your confidence is not in how you feel. It's in what Christ has done for you. Secondly, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we have because he who promised is faithful. A friend reminded me this week that going to church is a step of faith. We are in those moments when we go to church, we take that step of faith, We are asking God to speak promises into our life. So I want you to come to church expectant that God will speak his promises into your life. That you are holy. I want you to know that tonight. That you are holy. That that you are saved if you trusted Jesus. That that he's put his spirit in you. That, That he is working in you. If you look at kind of the topsy-turvy of your week, it's really easy to kind of depart from this in some crazy way. But I want you to be reminded tonight of the promises that we have in Jesus Christ. And out of those promises, the hope that we have. That he will be true to his promises. That he is faithful. I've been reading a book by Mark Manson um, that I won't quote particularly because it's not for everyone. But he's a secularist. He's an interesting guy. And he's just recently written a book on hope. 
And I'm saying, I wonder what someone without Jesus has to say on hope. And he's pretty upfront at the beginning. He talks about the uncomfortable truth that life is meaningless. Kind of hard to start a book on hope, but he's pretty upfront. That's what it is for him. He has no sense of grand hope. There's no meta-narrative for him. And so the best he can do is kind of string some stuff together about how our emotions and rationality play together and how we can kind of just do the best with what we've got. (laughs) I guess it's kind of sad, actually. Interesting book, but sad. Because what we are being offered is a life defined by an incredible truth. Not an uncomfortable truth, an incredible truth that there really is meaning in this life. That God really did design this world with purpose and wisdom and for glory. And that you're part of that. And not just part of that by some accident, but that he loves you enough to send his son into the world and die for you. And that he wants you to be part of his glorious purposes now and for eternity. And when you think of that incredible truth, and you think of the hope that that brings... Friends, let us hold unswervingly, oh dear, here we go, (laughs) tech fail, let us hold unswervingly to that hope. Now there's going to be weeks where where kind of your circumstances make that feel really distant, that that hope is so ethereal, so otherworldly, and you're going to need each other to remind us, let us hold unswervingly to this hope, that we might be taken back to these promises to the real hope we have, to the truth that we can build our lives upon. And when we do that, we become an expectant church. Not just treading water till kind of the free tickets to heaven pay out, but expectant that the God who is at work in this world really is at work in us. That he really is transforming us. That he really is at work in us to reach the world. To see communities made whole. Are you living out this hope? Where are you struggling with that? Let us hold on to it together. Thirdly, let us spur one another on. And that kind of spur really is kind of, you know, the the little metal bit on the cowboy boots, kind of spur, hurt the horsey a bit, but makes it go fast. Like, it's uncomfortable, but in this case, it's worth it. And I think of two kinds of conversations that look like spurring one another on. There's the courageous conversation. So there's a conversation that someone had with me a few weeks ago. Mike, as this person looked over some of my thinking and, and behavior patterns, said, it's, Mike, it, it's as though you haven't heard the full gospel. You're living this part of your life without relation to the good news of Jesus. What have you not heard, Mike? Now, he knows I've heard the gospel, but he's pulling me up at one moment to say, actually, you need to hear the gospel in this part of your life. That is a courageous conversation. Who, who is in, who, 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 what people are in your life that are able to have those courageous conversations with you? And similarly, how are you having those courageous conversations? Now, I'm not advocating that after the service we all have these courageous conversations and get into overshare and weirdness. No, it, take, it takes trust and time and earnesty and sincerity, but nonetheless, Are these not beautiful conversations? Secondly, I think about vulnerable conversations. I've been reading Sam Chan's book on evangelism in a skeptical world, and he kind of celebrates postmodernism because for all kind of weirdness and kind of just the the lack of definition to postmodernism, 
one of the benefits is everyone gets to share their kind of own story and everyone's on their own little journey, blah, blah, blah. But the advantage of that is you actually get to share with people just random little moments of testimony and people can take it or leave it because that's the world of postmodernism. So when I'm walking my dog in um, Henry Noble Reserve, I'm chatting to Alistair, the dog walker who our dogs kind of get on really well with, and so I've got to know him. That's how I make friends these days. And he repeats back to me a vulnerable conversation I had with him a while ago and totally forgot about. He, he reminded me that I told him that I'm an overly driven person who needs to be reminded that God is enough. <laughs> I was like, wow, I really am vulnerable. Um, but let us celebrate this. Let, let us do this together in the church that we might spur one another on. And it also flows out into evangelism. We don't need armor. You don't need to come to church with your Sunday faces on, pretending like you've got it all together. Because you don't. We're told that. The only confidence we have is in Jesus Christ. I need you. And we need each other to spur each other on. That for all the crazy that's going on in your world, we might be reminded of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and what he is doing in us through his spirit. Now, spurring one another on flows out into two other let us's. So let us not giving up meeting together. Somewhere in all the kind of church Christian life, church became something you just go to. Like you, you come to like a lecture and hear a guy monologue for 25 minutes. I mean, unfortunately, it's close to that. And I'm glad that the word of God is at the center of our meeting. But this is not a lecture. You are not coming to a program. This is not a social club. You have been invited to be the church. And when you think about it as being the church and how that shapes your intentionality to prioritize it, to speak to one another, to encourage one another, spur one another on, it changes the game. We really do need to think about what it looks like to prioritize church. So when you come to church and kind of there's a, there's a changeover every week, there's like sort of like a 50% rollover. The conversation you've had last week, it's very hard to pick up again next week. So when the new person comes and kind of they met a bunch of people and then they're not there next week, it's very hard to be the church. Now I'm really encouraged by the priority that people are giving to church. But I just want you to be thinking about what church is. It's not just something you go to in the busy schedule of your week. You're being invited to be the church to one another and even to the world. A little acronym I got told uh, many years ago was, uh, was BELL. It's a bit lame, but it kind of has stuck with me. So be early, leave late. And the only reason you really would do that is because you want to be the church for those people who come early, and newcomers especially. Look up on the website, church, that's this time. I want to be early because people do that. And if there's no one there, very hard to be the church to that person, to show them the welcome of Christ if no one's here. And likewise, if the church finishes and everyone disappears, well, you've just come to a program, taken what you've been spoon-fed and walked out the door. What does it look like to be the church? Do not give up meeting together, we are reminded. And that looks like stuff outside of Sunday as well. So that if you're at the dinner table with you know, your family and a family member doesn't show up, you kind of notice, right? You're kind of like, where's whoever? He's not a cat that kind of you just hope comes back at the end of the night. You should be caring for one another. And it does get harder as church gets bigger. But if you notice someone's not here, 
be the church and kind of reach out. How are you doing? We missed you. You're a valuable part of the body of Christ here. Lastly, let us encourage one another because over all of this presides a culture of thankfulness for each other and what God is doing in us and through us. I remember being at a church several years back as a young adults congregation, sort of 200, and you know, I'm, not, I'm not entirely on board with the homogenous unit principle. I really celebrate the diversity of what we have been called into in the new humanity. And I, was, I, I saw that play out in this, this older lady, much older lady than the rest of us going to this church. She would come to the night service. She made that her home. And there, just, there, was, there was a profound depth to her faith that really impacted many of us, including me. So there she'd be standing at the door to welcome people, not because she'd been rostered on, because she wanted to be the church. And she would say, hey, welcome, Mike, good to see you. But then she would say something so profound that it just kind of it went over my head for many years until I stopped hearing it because I'd moved to a different church and realized what a profound blessing she was. She would say, welcome to church, Mike. I've been praying for you during the week. That's beautiful, is it not? Expressing an intentionality to intercede for me, to bring me into the very presence of God because she knew what, where the confidence lied. And she wanted to sow into me the promises of God as she interceded for me. And she shared that that blessing, that encouragement, not just with me, but with many in the church. Let us encourage one another. Because when your confidence is put in Christ, it's no longer about you, but God and others. So let us encourage one another, and all the more as the day approaches, when we will truly and perfectly be in the presence of God. The double, therefore, should help set this truth on fire in our hearts. Therefore, the gospel gives us confidence to enter the very throne room of God, the very presence of God. And therefore, let us encourage each other that we might bake this into the very realities of our life. Now, I could finish there and that would be great. And I'm running out of time, so I'll come close to finishing here. But the passage keeps going. And one of the most remarkable things after this, this beautiful little paragraph, 925, comes this hammer. And as someone said to me this morning, Mike, this, this sermon takes a bit of a Quentin Tarantino twist. Because it finishes with a reminder that there are only two ways to come into the presence of God. And we all will. Everyone will stand before God in the end. And there's two ways that you're going to go about that. Firstly, and God willing, You come being washed in the blood of Christ. That your life is built on the confidence of the good news of Jesus. That you are forgiven, that you are made holy, that you are perfect. All because of Jesus Christ. The second way is that you would trample over the Son to get to the Father. Without Jesus, there is no hope. And without Jesus, you will find yourself trampling over the most extravagant gift that you'll ever know. Because it's in Jesus' death that God has reached out to us, given us confidence, and brought us into the eternal glory of God Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. As we pray this in tomorrow night at the prayer meeting, One of the things that I've been thinking about is praying through that that God would put the burden of my neighbor's glory on my back. 
that I would see these two realities at play in Newtown Erskineville. That I would so desire that people would, would no longer trample over this gift, would trample over the Son, but receive the Spirit of grace. Now, I can't manufacture that for me, for you, for anyone in this community. But let us look to the good news of Jesus. And when we find it, there's no room left for casualness, for complacency. There's a lot of room for for gratitude, for delight, for confidence. For we have been given much in Jesus Christ. So let us encourage one another. Let us draw near together. Let me pray. Father, we, are, we have never experienced the fatherly love that you have demonstrated anywhere else. And we can scarcely comprehend the beauty of the good news we have in Jesus. That our confidence to stand before you, O Holy One, has been entirely gifted to us through the blood of Jesus Christ that washes us, that sanctifies us, that perfects us. And so, Father, would you set our hearts on fire that we would delight in you and not waver and let us encourage each other through the thick and thin of our days and weeks that we might give you the glory in everything. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.